ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. A Chinese court hands down a suspended death sentence to Australian writer and academic Yang Hongjun. China is reputedly the world's leading executioner state, but death penalty data is a secret in China. In fact, China is one of a very small number of countries that actually criminalizes the release of death penalty data. What we know and don't know about the death penalty in China. That's coming up on The Law Report. Hi, Damien Carrick here. Now, when should a parent be held legally responsible for the crimes of their child. In a legal first, a jury in the US state of Michigan has found the mother of 15-year-old school shooter Ethan Crumbly guilty of four counts of involuntary manslaughter. The boy's father will face trial on similar charges next month. Law professor Echo Yanka from the University of Michigan says this is the first case of its kind in the US. Professor Yanka, the trial of Jennifer Crumbly relates to a school shooting in November 2021. What happened that day? It really was a difficult day for an entire community. Um, Ethan Crumley is a young man who'd been suffering from mental health issues for many years. By the prosecution's evidence, he had been asking his parents for therapy for a long time. He'd been having hallucinations. He'd been fantasizing about harming people, um, about, frankly, shooting the school. His parents, as far as we can tell, though obviously they deny this, just ignored his pleas for help. Instead of seeking out medical help, they bought Ethan a pistol for an early Christmas present. Indeed, they took him to a shooting range and just allowed him to continue on this path. Ethan then that day went into school. A teacher found him drawing pictures of bodies and a gun blood on his homework. And the teacher was so disturbed, he had Ethan go to the principal's office. The principals called the Crumleys and asked them if they were able to take Ethan home. The Crumleys decided not to. And two hours later, Ethan opened fire at his school killing four children and wounding seven. So he's now going to spend the rest of his life in jail. What was the legal foundation of the charges of involuntary manslaughter against the mother, Jennifer Crumbly? So Ethan, as you mentioned, is going to spend the rest of his life in jail for the horrible acts of that day. Though there is a live debate in America about whether or not juveniles should get life sentences without the possibility of parole. Setting that aside, the thing that makes this case novel, the thing that makes it quite extraordinary, is that the prosecution didn't just decide to prosecute Jennifer Crumley for neglect of her child or for leaving a gun around or for any one of the things you might have think she did wrong. Instead, the prosecution sought to hold Jennifer Crumley responsible for the four people that Ethan killed on a charge of what is described as involuntary manslaughter. In America, involuntary manslaughter is generally a killing that you've committed through your negligence. Even if you didn't know that something was at risk and didn't ignore that risk, an ordinary person would have seen that risk and would have acted to stop it. So the prosecution's novel theory is that Jennifer Crumley's negligence caused the death of those four people. 
That is to say that Jennifer Crumley is responsible for the deaths or the results of Ethan's shootings. And that is a quite, quite striking step forward in the law. So to what degree was she negligent? I mean, what do you need to be to cross that line from being an imperfect parent into somebody who is guilty of involuntary manslaughter? Well, that's really the question that was facing the jury. There are two things at stake here. In the first year of any criminal law class, law students learn that unless you're an accomplice or a couple other rare exceptions, unless you, for example, make it possible for somebody who themselves is irresponsible to hurt somebody, for example, you leave a gun around for a child or for somebody who's insane, anytime somebody acts, that severs the causal chain. Without jargon, it just means that somebody's actions are for them to take accountability for, not for you. So the prosecution now has to convince the jury that Ethan Crumley's mother should be responsible for his acts. And what the prosecution pointed to were all the moments that led up to the shooting. As the prosecution said in closing, there were a million little moments where she could have done something in order to avoid this harm. When Ethan was researching ammunition online. And instead of finding out what he was thinking, she laughed it off and said, oh, I don't care if you do this, just don't get caught. And in particular, the prosecution really pointed that last day when the Crumleys left Ethan at school and did not tell the school officials that they had bought him a gun and that he may have had a gun in his backpack. And on that day, the teachers had called the parents to say, look, we have concerns, and they brushed those aside. That's right. To be perfectly fair, there's conflicting testimony about what happened that day. Did the school insist that they take Ethan home and they declined, or did the principals, did the school officials and the parents discuss it together and mutually come to the conclusion? What we know is that the school officials at some point were asking or at least offering or asking, maybe hinting, maybe insisting, it's always hard to know that it might be a good day for Ethan to go home. And however the ultimate resolution occurred, they did not decide to take him home. And when they walked out without telling the school officials that he was armed, I mean, of course, as I said, there are a million moments that occurred leading up to this. But the prosecution really wanted to point to that moment. These are the moments where a reasonable person could have stopped this tragedy from occurring, the prosecution argued, and they did not. Was there conversation during the trial about the parenting style of of both parents? Yeah. So part of what was interesting about this case is that eventually the defense had to put Jennifer Crumley on the stand in order to humanize her. After all, the prosecution had painted a stark picture of a mother who was at best disinterested, at worst, just totally uncaring. A mother who was more interested in her horses, in her extramarital affairs, two parents who spend a lot of time drinking, carousing, arguing, and fighting, and leaving little boy to sink into the depths of his kind of mental health issues. But what's interesting about that case is when we see cases like that, for example, we have a really sad case in Virginia where a six-year-old girl took a gun from her home and shot her teacher 
And that mother was prosecuted, but she was prosecuted for doing drugs while in possession of a firearm and being negligent in the care of her child. So what's really striking about this case is remember that the prosecution wasn't prosecuting Janet Crumley for being a negligent or poor mother. They were taking this next grand legal step and saying, it's not that she was inadequate. It's that her actions caused the death of those four people. And so part of the contrast of this case was precisely the line between when you're responsible for poor parenting and the consequences that come from that, or does that extend all the way to your being responsible for the actions that your poor parenting may have led to? Really interesting, because I guess there will be different ideas amongst Americans about what constitutes responsible or acceptable parenting. So buying a gun for your kid for Christmas or teaching them how to fire a gun at a, at a gun range, are they regarded as appropriate by some parts of the community? School shootings are obviously not red state, blue state. They are tragic no matter where they happen. But that being said, some of our cultural divides did loom behind this case, right? So for some set of parents, myself included, the idea of buying your child a gun seems really just you know, if not totally bizarre, at least incredibly unusual. The kind of thing that would be, you know, full alert, pay great attention, really a kind of insertion of fatal danger into the family. But of course, for another set of Americans, guns are part of their everyday life. It's part of the firmament. It's part of learning to hunt. Or maybe, as you know, there are lots of Americans for whom guns and shooting ranges just count as both a hobby and perhaps something close to a sacred right. So for those set of Americans, the idea that you buy your kid a gun or his first gun is not shocking. Indeed, might not even be unusual. And I think that kind of cultural divide loomed behind whether or not you thought this was outrageous parenting or this is the kind of thing that could happen to any parent who's doing their best. Now, I understand the father of the school shooter, James Crumbly, Jennifer's husband, he will face trial on similar charges next month. Why were the trials of Jennifer and James being held separately? Here I'm going to have to speculate, and I want want to make clear that that's what I'm doing. The Crumleys were slated to be tried together for much of the history of this case. Indeed, it was really quite late that the Crumleys petitioned to have their cases separated. So, you know, as a lawyer, you if you're asked, well, how did that come to be? The thing you suspect is that the Crumleys decided that their legal interests were coming apart. That is to say that one of them thought that there was an argument about why the other was more to blame than they were. Or maybe they both thought they could, in some sense, point the finger. And that did play out in some parts of the trial. Jennifer Crumley testified that it was James who bought the gun for their son, that it was James who was responsible for locking it up, that, so to speak, this was his thing with his son, even though she'd gone to the shooting ranges with him. And, you know, perhaps perhaps it's the case that James, James and his legal team equally think that there are features of Jennifer's behavior which make her look like the more culpable one. What do you see as the possible implications of this decision in terms of extending criminal responsibility? Will, will we see a, a rash or a flood of, of similar kinds of prosecutions? 
this is the question we're all asking ourselves. And to be sure, um, there's a sense in which we're all waiting to see how this develops. Let's point to why this case is so gripping, both in our country and across the world. It's because the facts are devastating. These seem close to uniquely awful facts, uh, mischance after mischance that leads to the death of these four children and seven other broken bodies. So if you look at it that way, it's doubtful that we'll see truly a rash of other cases like this. I mean, the phrase lawyers like to use is this case may be contained to its facts. That is, it's a uniquely bad case and thus created unique law. But that being said, you know, every lawyer knows that the life of the law is precedent. And once prosecutors have this kind of tool available to them, some prosecutor will see the next horrific case will equally be outraged or will have a community that is uh, equally broken apart and they will seek to try either a case that is, it's hard to imagine a case as awful, but a case that's similar. And frankly, they'll do what prosecutors always do. They will reason by extension so that the next case, who knows, is it, you know, the worry is, is it a parent who's struggling and truly doing their best, but whose child is involved in violence? You know, if your child is involved in gang violence and you know this and you're trying to stop them, but they take your weapon and use it. If your child is struggling with drugs and alcohol, maybe they took the family car for a joyride once and and you leave the keys lying around. I, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't think those are identical cases, but I think it's naive for people not to understand that the way law works is by arguing by analogy. And so that's the question that we're all watching for. And you have to look at that as well as looking at the message it sends to the broader community, which prosecutors hope will be taken on board, that you should be a better parent. You should keep guns under lock and key. Yeah. And, you know, we've now passed Michigan in for the first time in something like four decades has passed a raft of gun safety laws, including new laws about locking up your guns. Um, it's really just tragic that it had to be something this heartbreaking to to lead to those laws being passed. Law Professor Echo Yanka from the University of Michigan, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you for having me. This is The Law Report. Do subscribe to the podcast on the ABC Listen app or whatever platform you found us on. And also, please do leave a review. It helps others find the program. Last week, Australian citizen Yang Hung Jun was given a suspended death sentence by a Chinese court. Foreign Minister Penny Wong said the Australian government was appalled by the decision and that Australia would not relent in its advocacy for justice for Dr Yang's interests and wellbeing. Tobias Smith, Assistant Professor of Administration of Justice at Ohlone College in California, is an expert in China's death penalty. Tobias Smith, who is Yang Hangjun? Yang Hangjun is born in China and uh, became an Australian citizen in the early 2000s. He has a varied and interesting career. According to media reports, he worked for the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He's written spy novels. He's also spoken out about human rights issues and politics in China. It appears that in 2019, while he was living in New York City and in residence as a visiting scholar at Columbia University, he traveled to China with his family and he was detained. And his case quickly garnered media and diplomatic attention. 
And I think he had been previously detained in 2011 in China, but was released ahead of a, a visit to China by the then Prime Minister Julia Gillard. So he's obviously been in the sights of Chinese authorities for many years. It's always difficult to know who is, as you put it, in the sights of Chinese authorities. According to media reports, he felt secure enough to, of his own volition, fly back to China, uh, which is when he was detained. So what do we know about what he's accused of and what he's been found guilty of? So he was detained in 2019, and his case drew a lot of attention, particularly from the Australian government, of course, because he's a citizen, a national. He went to trial in 2021. China denied him consular access at the trial. This is a violation of China's own consular treaty agreement. So it's actually very hard to know exactly what went on. There was then a two-year gap after his trial, and the judgment in the case was just released. We haven't actually seen the judgment itself. Uh, What we have is a report from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from China reporting the judgment and indicating that he has been found guilty of spying, of espionage, and sentenced to something called death with two-year reprieve. UTS Associate Professor Chong Yi Feng uh, Young's PhD supervisor says, quote, Dr. Young did not commit any crime of espionage. He's being punished by the Chinese government for his criticism of human rights and advocacy of universal values such as human rights, democracy and rule of law. What do we know about China's position about what they say he's done? Well, they haven't given any evidence, really. And the, the simple answer is that In any rule of law system, if someone is going to be charged and convicted of a crime, it's really incumbent upon the prosecution to provide the evidence for the charges and for the conviction and to make that information public. So until that information is public, essentially the Chinese government is asking us to take its word for it. So we we basically have a black hole of information. Tobias Smith, in China, do accused receive what we would regard as a fair trial? So for a little bit of background, for the last few decades, China has been working to increase its criminal procedure protections. And I think with some historical context, it's done a pretty good job of that. So making sure that all defendants receive defense counsel and have certain kinds of due process protections. This has been an ongoing process that the state has committed to I think in routine cases, has done a better and better job of. Nonetheless, the vast, vast majority of criminal trials result in conviction. The conviction rate is something like 99.9% in China. Yes, the conviction rate is extremely high. It is overwhelmingly likely that a defendant brought to trial is going to be convicted. What do we know about the death penalty in China? How many people are on death row and how many people are executed every year? Well, again, we don't know much. China is reputedly the world's leading executioner state, but death penalty data is a secret in China. In fact, China is one of a very small number of countries um, that actually criminalizes the release of death penalty data. And so there are a number of foreign organizations and uh, international bodies that attempt to do their best to determine how many folks are executed in China. 
And we really don't know. Uh, these days, Amnesty International simply reports thousands, thousands of people executed. One of the unfortunate facts of not being able to know is that there's some evidence that China has actually reduced its number of executions drastically in the last two decades. But again, because we don't have good data, uh, we can't tell that story either. And do we know what offences attract the death penalty in China? We do. So formally, there are dozens of offences that could result in the death penalty. But our best data suggest that, in fact, the vast majority of death sentences, technically immediate death sentences, that means a death sentence that's going to result in execution, is for uh, one of a small number of crimes, particularly drug trafficking. And then the other is essentially homicide. So murder. Those are the two biggies. Are sometimes prisoners dying in prison through a lack of medical care or poor conditions? And perhaps an interpretation could be said that they are being executed by stealth. This is a question that cuts both ways because there certainly are some high-profile prisoners who have died in custody and uh, it appears have not received the treatment that they needed. It's also been the case that for particularly high-profile prisoners and dissidents, medical parole has been one route to release, one way for uh, cases of high concern to be resolved under China's criminal justice system. So it can go either direction. And in this particular case, uh, Yang Hangjun is reportedly uh, has a cyst on his kidney, We haven't gotten a lot of information about that situation, but there have been calls to release him on medical parole. Now, Yang Hongjun received what is known as a nominal death penalty. What is that? I mean, I think the idea is that he's received a death penalty, but it can be commuted if if there are two years of of good behaviour. What is this nominal death penalty? Yes, he received something called a suspended execution or a suspended death sentence. So this is a formal death sentence, which is to say that officially it's a capital sentence for which execution is withheld for a set period of two years, conditional on the behavior of the person who's been sentenced to death. And if there has been no new crime committed during this period, then the sentence is converted to a fixed-term sentence. In practice, our best estimate is that more than 99% of people who get this sentence are not executed. Right? It's an alternative to actually being executed. So some commentators have noted that a suspended execution essentially carries the symbolic oomph of capital punishment, Right, the idea that the state has condemned someone, but without actually killing anyone. And do executions in China attract a lot of media attention? Are they reported in the media consistently or just are some highlighted and others ignored? Well, the Chinese media is state media and some capital cases get a lot of attention in state media, particularly cases that underline a point of social concern that the state wants to emphasize. So it is certainly the case that if you pick up a newspaper in China, you can and do read about the death penalty. It's not like it's a a topic that has totally disappeared from reportage, but it's selective, right? So again, we don't have any independent, transparent way of knowing 
how many people are executed under what circumstances. We don't have independent access to all of these verdicts. So there are cases that are highlighted in the media. You may have a case of corruption, state corruption that results in an execution and that can get a lot of media attention, particularly horrific crime that has drawn public scrutiny. But again, it's not transparent. So it's it's biased. It's uneven. And it's hard to know what conclusions to draw from those media stories. I understand that transparency in many ways is going into reverse. Until recent months, there had been a lot of publication of court judgments in China, but that actually is being reversed. That trend is being reversed. Why is that happening? And what are what concerns do people like you have about that? Many folks have been surprised to learn that China has not only a robust legal system, but over the last decade, as you mentioned, uh, the Chinese state has invested a lot of resources, uh, invested a lot of resources in expanding transparency. And the reason for that is that transparency is ultimately a pretty effective way to run a legal system. You want consistency of judgments. You want diverse courts to be able to understand what's happening. You want other state actors to know what's going on in your legal system. And transparency helps with all of those things. So there are strong governance imperatives to make systems more transparent. And for a while, it looked like this was a a steady path forward for China. Indeed, the Chinese courts built the largest public repository of court verdicts in the world, China judgments online. And for a while, they were actually putting some death penalty verdicts on there. Again, not all verdicts, just a slice, but it was more than we'd ever been able to access before. Unfortunately, in the last few years, that trend has reversed, as you mentioned. And so fewer and fewer death penalty verdicts were being published and then they were being taken off. And ultimately now, uh, total access to this database is restricted for foreign researchers. There's been this turn away from transparency. And I think the reasons for it are complex, right? The Chinese state is facing competing imperatives. There's the value of transparency for efficiency, for stability, and there are certain threats to transparency for stability, perceived threats, I should say. So it's been unfortunate from lawyers who might point to a published judgment saying, look, that person only got X number of years for that offence, yet my client is getting far more. So not so much about, uh, you know, being able to argue if somebody's guilty or not guilty, but able to, 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 to look to different sentencing practices in different parts of the country. So it could be that transparency could lead to frustration or dissent domestically could also be concerns about international observation of legal practices could be about concerns about the independence of the court relating to elite chinese politics there are a lot of different ways in which transparency might be seen as internally as a threat to stability coming back to Yang Hongjun, could there be conversations between the Australian and the Chinese governments that might lead to his eventual release? I'm sure that those conversations are taking place now. Certainly, we have not heard the end of this case. Certainly, it is still a case of concern 
for both governments. And I don't doubt that it will continue to be on the forefront of any bilateral conversation. Tobias Smith, Assistant Professor of Administration of Justice at Ohlone College in California and expert in China's death penalty. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you so much for having me, Damien. That's all we have time for today. And on the question of whether the prosecution of Yang Hangjun is a case of hostage diplomacy, I do recommend that you hop onto the ABC Listen app and listen to a really interesting conversation on Sunday Extra with former Australian diplomat Ian Kemish. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.